your Bibles again, if you would, and turn with me to Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. This is, by my recollection, the third time uh, that I just turned my mic on. Okay. By my recollection. <laughs> Shall I keep talking? We'll see what happens. By my recollection. <laughs> the third time we've turned to Acts chapter 13. So, uh, and the last, I think we'll finish this chapter today as we walk through this book. We are trying to trace the story of how, uh, through the followers of uh, Jesus, the Holy Spirit takes the message about Jesus from Jerusalem as far away as the city of Rome. And this morning we're going to spend some time at the, uh, with Paul in the city of Pisidian Antioch. And that's in Acts chapter 13, starting in verse 13. Now, before I look at the text, I want to start uh, by breaking two of the rules that they told us about preaching when I was in school. So if you're grading this sermon, this is a uh, plea for mercy. So don't do this, all right, if you ever have an opportunity. The two rules I'm going to break are, number one, I'm going to start by uh, telling you and reminding you of a story that's in the Bible. I'm going to start with the Bible itself. You're supposed to start with today's world more and then go to the Bible. I'm going to start in the Bible, so there's rule violation number one. The second one, the second rule that I'm going to break is, huh, I'm going to tell you a Bible story that you know so well there will hardly be any surprise to it at all. So, well, let's start, shall we? Uh, the story that I want you to think about this morning is also by the same author of Acts 13. It was written by Luke. He recorded it's one of Jesus' stories, and it's one, probably Jesus' most well-known story. That I want you to think about it with me. It's a story we call the story of the prodigal son. You know that really well, don't you? Well, think about it with me here for just a minute. The characters, there's a father. The story starts with his father. Um, we don't know how old he is, do we? But he was old enough to have at least uh, two uh, grown sons. So he wasn't a young, young father, not really chasing toddlers around. And the other thing that we know about him is he was wealthy. At the end of the story, he had a ring, a robe, a sandals to spare, uh, and enough servants and a large enough house and enough resources to throw a rather large celebration. Uh, in, in the course of time, the younger son came to his father, and very disrespectfully, his father wasn't even dead, of course, but he demanded that his father give him his inheritance. And he takes the money, and he goes a long ways away, and he spends all the money in what the Bible lovingly calls wild living. And after a while, of, of, uh, after he burns through all the money, he ends up working uh, in slave-like conditions for a pig farmer. Now... <laughs> Some of you uh, know pig farmers and love pig farmers, and the Bible's not trying to be uh, pejorative about pig farming, but remember that Jesus was speaking to a group of people that keep kosher. And if you keep kosher, being a pig farmer is not high on the career list. Then, as Jesus says, it's a wonderful phrase, the young man came to himself. It's a beautiful phrase. And he came to himself and he thought about his father at home and he remembered what his father was like and he thought about the welcome he would get home when he got there. He left the pig farm and he ran home and he got a welcome that was even more lavish than he could even imagine. In fact, it was so kind and gracious, it was almost a little unsettling for him. Now that's sometimes how we end the story 
Uh, it matches the other stories that Jesus told in that context. He told a story about a shepherd who lost his sheep and uh, a woman who lost her coin and a father who lost one of his sons. And uh, all the first two stories end when the, the lost item is found and there's a celebration. So sometimes when he tells the story of the prodigal son, we end it there when the son comes home and there's joy. Except uh, Jesus told us about that older brother too. The older brother stood outside the house. And he was angry. He's not going to join in the celebration even when his father leaves the party and comes out and begs him. The story doesn't really end, does it? it it's odd. How, how would you stage this? Let's think, think about the ending of this story. Let's, let's put the stage at night, shall we? And, and on this side, we'll put it on this side because um, it, we'll put home over here. And, and it's good because we move from left to right when we read, and so we want to go home. So we're going to encourage us to go home. Put the house over here. It's, it's night, but the house is lit up. There's lights. It's just glowing. And you can hear voices from inside the house, people talking and laughing, and maybe the, the, the tinkle and, uh, of, of dishes. Maybe there's even a band in there. That's the house. And on the other side of the stage... As this story ends, Jesus, let's put the older brother. What does he look like? His back is certainly to the house, right? Very angry and happy. And in the middle, in between the two of them, the house and the brother is the father. What does he look like? He's imploring with his son to come in the house. Please, jo- join the celebration. Now, what I want to think about here as we imagine this story is which one of the sons knew their father the best? Which one has the most accurate understanding of what the father is really like? The young son has been living a long ways away in a far country. And when he thought about his dad, he remembered his father for his mercy and his generosity the vast expanse of his father's kindness in fact he underestimated the magnanimity with which he would be welcomed home uh, it, it again it might actually have been more uh, uncomfortable more more kindness than he was comfortable receiving now the older son ironically he lived with his father he saw his father every day he ate with him he worked with him he worshiped with him And when he thought about his father, he used words like this. My father is reckless. He's gullible. He's careless. On the one hand, and then he's cheap and stingy and unfair, too. Which son was more accurate when it came to describing the nature of their father? I think it's an important question, and it's an important question for us as we're going to follow the Apostle Paul as he travels through the rest of the book of Acts. This question, in fact, is going to dog him. There is a sermon before us in Acts 13 that's going to help us see that. See, Acts 13 is the beginning of Paul's missionary work in um, the Mediterranean, and he always, when he goes to a new town, looks for a Jewish synagogue. A synagogue was a local meeting house for Jews to form a synagogue there had to be at least 10 Jewish men in a city. When we come to Philippi in a few weeks, um, weeks, what am I kidding? It's a chapter away, months. 
uh, there will be, uh, there's, there's no synagogue. There's not enough Jewish men to form a synagogue. But Pisidian Antioch, according to records that we have, had about 2,000 Jewish residents. So there was substantial synagogue there, maybe more than one synagogue. And the Jews that were so far away from the temple in Jerusalem would meet weekly in the synagogue for worship and for prayer. And Paul would always go to the synagogue first. It was a great strategy because the gospel's for the Jews first, he says in Romans 1. And it was a really good place to meet Gentiles who were interested in the God of the Old Testament, the one true God. And Acts 13 is a sample and a summary of the type of message that he normally preached in those synagogues. We see here the flavor of the preaching. Paul's mind, he just weaves together in this sermon so many passages from the Old Testament. And we also see his evangelistic strategy for speaking in this religious audience. The sermon summary is here. It ends in verse 41. And then the rest of the chapter describes the response of, of uh, the people to his sermon. Paul was chased out of a lot of towns. We're going to find this out. Uh, there was an evangelist once who uh, complained. He said, whenever Paul goes anywhere in the book of Acts, either there is revival or a riot. When I go to towns, they throw tea parties. Well, Paul was chased out of a lot of towns, and, but he was most often rejected by the Jews in the town, not the Gentiles. And I wonder, why is that? And I want to argue that it has to do with their understanding of the fullness of the extent of the goodness and the mercy of God. I want to show that to you, but more importantly, actually, I want to probe your thinking a little bit. How accurately do you perceive the fullness of the mercy and generosity of God? The question is important for how, how it, it affects what you say when you represent Jesus and how accurately you represent Jesus in the world. If you knew someone in your neighborhood was giving something away, let's say you have a neighbor, a, a Let's imagine here a very wealthy, extravagant neighbor, and you knew that your neighbor would give $50 to anybody who comes and asks. As often as they come, neighbor will hand out $50 bills. You just know they're that generous. Or let's uh, they give out chocolate chip cookies or movie passes or chicken dinners. She, she, your neighbor, she'll give it to anybody who asks. As often as they ask, wouldn't you be excited to tell people about that? Based on this person's generosity, oh, you should see my neighbor. She's so she gives away stuff. It's amazing. Even even if what she was giving away wasn't worth that much, she's giving away cherry tomatoes like there's no tomorrow, right? You know someone who's making a salad, right? At some point in time and needs a cherry. Wouldn't you be able to say, my neighbor, she she's so generous. She'll give she'll give away to anybody who asks cherry tomatoes. If you're making a salad, you need to come to my neighborhood. Doesn't your understanding of God's generosity affect how you speak and represent about and represent Jesus in the world? Now, let's read the text here. What I want to do is uh, the sermon summary is in verses 16 to 41. I'm going to read that pretty straight through. But I want to set the context first in verses 13 to 15. So uh, during this, the beginning and the end, I'm going to pause and I'll make comments. But uh, when we get to the sermon, I'll read that straight through. Let's start here, verse 13. From Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga and Pamphylia, where John left them to return to Jerusalem. Now, it's been many months since I said this, but I have mentioned that one of the things that you need to read the book of Acts well is a good map. And here's the day that you need it. 
So I want you to turn in your Bibles to the very back, to the book of Maps. If you don't have maps at the back of your Bible, sell your Bible and buy one that does. You should have... Now, I say that knowing that the Pew Bibles don't have maps. And I'm embarrassed to say neither does mine. So... Oh, awful. Well, get near somebody who has a book of maps. Not a book of maps. There's not a book of maps. But a bunch of maps in the back of your Bible. And find one that says Paul's Missionary Journeys. You should have one that says Paul's Missionary Journeys. And we're going to start on the far right-hand side. Look at that. Far right-hand side is the city of Antioch. That's where Paul, Paul's headquarters for his ministry. On the far right side, the city of Antioch. And the first thing he did, we read this last week, is he sailed from Antioch to um, the island of Cyprus. And he went eventually to the city of Paphos. Can you see the city of Paphos? It's in the southwestern corner of the island of Cyprus. And this text tells us that uh, Paul and his companions sailed from Paphos, traced the line up from Paphos to Perga. And Perga is on the southern edge of what we call Turkey today, um, Asia Minor. And the text tells us that John left them there. John left uh, left them in Perga and went back to Jerusalem. Now why? Why did he do that? The text doesn't say. Paul clearly saw it as a defection, and we'll come back to that in Acts chapter 15. Paul and Barnabas are going to have a sharp disagreement about John and what to do about him. So uh, they went from uh, Perga, there they are in Perga, and they, uh, well, verse 14, from Perga, trace the line, they went on to Pisidian Antioch. Pisidian Antioch. Do you see that city up there? If you trace the line up, it's a little bit north and to the west of Perga. There's a city, it's called Pisidian Antioch. Now, why is it called Pisidian Antioch? It's called Pisidian Antioch to distinguish it from the Antioch that's in Syria, where Paul had his headquarters, the same name, Antioch, but this one is in the region of Pisidia. Do you see it's labeled maybe Pisidia there? Uh, This is Pisidian Antioch. When Kathy and I moved to uh, uh, Millersville 15 years ago, we picked up our rental van, our rental truck in Lancaster, Texas. And we returned it to Lancaster, Pennsylvania, knowing full well that my in-laws drive through almost every week a town in western New York called Lancaster. So there's Lancasters everywhere, and there were apparently Antiochs everywhere, and this is, this is the Pisidian Antioch. Not only that here, but uh, Pisidian Antioch is in a larger region. I wonder if you can see this. If it's, on your la- it's oddly shaped as a region of Galatia. It's a very oddly shaped administrative district formed by the Romans. It looks like a gerrymandered congregational congressional district, right? Isn't Galatia shaped very oddly there? Well, Pisidian Antioch is there. So the text tells us that Paul left Perga and went to Pisidian Antioch. Now, why did he go from Perga to Pisidian Antioch? Again, the text doesn't say. I'm going to speculate in three ways. Number one... Uh, Pisidian Antioch was the civil and um, religious, or actually the civil and military headquarters of this region. Paul often went to key cities and uh, started ministry there. So that's maybe why he went to Pisidian Antioch. The, uh, another reason, perhaps, is as, uh, an expert in Paul. Do you remember Sergius Paulus? Sergius Paulus was the man on the island of Cyprus who became a follower of Jesus. There are ancient records that indicate that Sergius Paulus was from this region in Pisidian Antioch. 
he was in Cyprus, but his hometown was up in Pisidian Antioch. And wouldn't it have been interesting if Sergius Paulus, after he trusted Christ as Savior, said to Paul, Paul, if you need a place to go next, would you go to my hometown? I have a brother who lives there, and uh, I'll give you a letter, and you can stay with him anytime you want. So just take this letter, and it'll give you a place for your missionary headquarters. You can stay with my brother up there in, in Pisidian Antioch. That's a possibility, too. One of the things that I think is very intriguing about it, though, some have speculated that the reason Paul left Perga and went up to Pisidian Antioch is because Perga is low, swampy, hot, humid ground, well known in the ancient world for giving people malaria. Well, the land doesn't give people malaria, but it was, it was awful. And some people think that maybe Paul got malaria and left and went up to Pisidian Antioch because Pisidian Antioch is 3,600 feet above sea level and it would be cool and dry up there. And maybe he went up there because he was sick. Uh, it's intriguing, isn't it? I, I quoted on the, on the note sheet, Galatians 4.13. Look what it says. It says, As you know, it was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you. Isn't that interesting? Maybe he was sick in Perga and then went up to Pisidian Antioch to preach there. What I want you to see in, in going over this map and talking about this text here is I want you to see that Paul was strategic and responsive and rational in his ministry. He, he didn't wander around waiting for the Spirit to tell him wh- where to place his feet. He, he was following the direction of the Spirit in a very general way, but he was also being very strategic and careful and rational about where he was going and responsive to the challenges that he and Barnabas were facing. Now, verse 15 here of the text. We're done with our map for today, so we'll go back to Acts 13, but I'm sure we'll get our maps out again someday. Acts uh, uh, 13, 14. From Perga they went on to Pisidian Antioch. On the Sabbath they entered the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the leaders of the synagogue sent sent word to them saying, Brothers, if you have a word of exhortation for the people, please speak. Now, why was Paul asked to, to give the sermon for the morning? He may have come dressed in the garb of a rabbi. Paul was a trained rabbi, and maybe he just by his dress had indicated that he was able to speak or maybe earlier in the week he had come and introduced himself to the synagogue leaders and told them i i trained with gamaliel and i have some things that are that are happening in jerusalem i'd like to talk to the the brothers at the synagogue about so they invite him to speak and here's his sermon verse 16 standing up paul motioned with his hand and said fellow israelites and you gentiles who worship god listen to me The God of the people of Israel chose our ancestors. He made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt. With mighty power, he led them out of that country. For about 40 years, he put up with their conduct in the wilderness. He endured them. And he overthrew seven nations in Canaan, giving their land to his people as their inheritance. All this took about 450 years. After this, God gave them judges until the time of Samuel the the prophet. Then the people asked for a king, and he gave them Saul, son of Kish, of the tribe of Benjamin, who ruled 40 years. After removing Saul, he made David their king. God testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. 
From this man's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Savior Jesus as he promised. Before the coming of Jesus, John preached repentance and baptism to all the people of Israel. As John was completing his work, he said, Who do you suppose I am? I am not the one you are looking for, but there is one coming after me whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Fellow children of Abraham and you God-fearing Gentiles, it is to us that this message of salvation has been sent. The people of Jerusalem and their elders did not recognize Jesus Yet in condemning him, they fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. Though they found no proper ground for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed. When they had carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he, has been, he was seen by those who had traveled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. They are now his witnesses to our people. We tell you the good news. What God promised our ancestors, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. As it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son today, I have become your father. God raised him from the dead so that he will never be subject to decay. As God has said, I will give, I will give you the holy and sure blessings promised to David. So it is also stated elsewhere, you will not let your holy one see decay. Now, when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. He was buried with his ancestors and his body decayed. But the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you through him. Everyone who believes is set free from every sin. A justification you are not able to obtain under the law of Moses. Take care. Take care that what the prophets have said does not happen to you. Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish, for I am going to do something in your days that you would never believe, even if someone told you. So there's the sermon summary, and here's the response. It starts in verse 42. As Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue, the people invited them to speak further about these things on the next Sabbath. When the congregation was dismissed, many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who talked with them and urged them to continue in the grace of God. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. When the Jews saw the crowd, they were filled with jealousy. They began to contradict what Paul was saying and heaped abuse on him. The text says that they were jealous. Why were they jealous? I think they were jealous because I don't know how long they had been in Pisidian Antioch, but no one has ever paid attention to them and their explanations of the Old Testament like they were to Paul and what he was saying. I understand a little bit like what this is like. Um, this week, Pastor Scott shared with me a list. It was written by Tom Rayner. Ten things you shouldn't say to your pastor after his sermon. Here's a couple of them. I am going to be late for lunch because you preach so long. Or this one. You must not have had much time to prepare that sermon. Actually, I've had that. Somebody told me once, man, you spent a lot of time studying, maybe too much. Uh, Then uh, here's another one. Let me tell you what you missed in your sermon this morning. 
Here's, here's one on my list. This is not on Tom Rainer's list, but this is on my list. Uh, no one's actually said this to me, but I'm sure after today you will. Uh, they, so you can imagine someone say, I heard a sermon this morning on the radio on that exact same passage from Charles Stanley, and boy, it was good. You know what I think? What I'm gonna, if you say that to me, what, this is what's going to go to my mind, through my mind when you say that to me. I'm going to say, Charles Stanley curses on Charles Stanley. <laughs> you cannot at the same time make people know that God and you are great. You can't do both of those things at the same time. Jealousy is a shrinking sin, isn't it? makes you very small. Verse 46, then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly, we had to speak the word of God to you first. He wasn't dragged into it. I mean, he was glad to. But since you reject it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, that's an important phrase, we'll come back to that, we now turn to the Gentiles, for this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. It's an unusual phrase, a verse, rather, for Paul to use. It's unusual because this is a verse that was specifically about the Lord Jesus. In Isaiah, the Lord Jesus is the light for the Gentiles. Paul's claiming it for himself. Why? Because he's coming in Jesus' name to proclaim to them about Jesus, to be a messenger and representative and witness for Jesus. Isn't it interesting, he says, I'm bringing the news of salvation to the ends of the earth. What did Jesus say in Acts 1.8? When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will receive power, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Paul gets it here. When the Gentiles heard this, verse 48, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord, and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. Now, the second half of verse 48 might disturb you a little bit, does it, maybe? It's good news that, that, that Paul is bringing the word of the Lord to them, and they're, they're glad and they're honored. But this verse, the end of verse 48, the second half here, touches directly on the issue of election. The word election and the word predestination are not at all in this passage, but this is a very strong predestinarian verse don't try to soften it don't try to dismiss it it says all who were appointed that's a passive verb who's doing the appointing god's doing the appointing and what does the appointing mean this word appoint is the same word that we use uh, they use in the ancient world to classify animals you put them in kingdoms or classes or phylum or orders or species uh, that, that work of classification, God classified. He appointed. And he appointed them for eternal life. And then they believed. It's a very strong election passage. And what's interesting, I think, that Luke here writes this, he writes this verse without any sense of apology or no sense of contradiction between God's work Uh, of appointing people for eternal life and Paul's determination to spread the message about Jesus. Isn't it interesting? In the midst of this book that is so much about spreading the message and calling all to believe and preaching Jesus, Luke makes this statement, and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. Uh, There's no sense of discomfort in the book of Acts 
or, or hesitancy in these seemingly opposite truths. The call of the gospel to everyone and the truth that God appoints some to eternal life and they believe. Now, I, I think that this, 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 uh, two, these two truths together, they're balanced really well in our doctrinal statement. I read this too often, this sentence, because I didn't write it and I think it's great. So let me read it to you. This is from section three of our doctrinal statement. God works everything in accordance with his perfect will, though his sovereignty does not eliminate nor minimize human responsibility. God's foreknowledge is exhaustive and not dependent on human decisions and actions. Now, here's the question. Why did these new believers in Pisidian Antioch uh, come to faith? Did they come to faith because they received and believed the message about Jesus? Or did they come to faith because they were appointed by God for eternal life? And the answer to that question is yes. Yes is the answer to that question. Now, here, look what happens as, as the story goes on. We're going to come to a, another strong statement in, in uh, Acts 16 or 17 about uh, election again. That will be really helpful later, too. Verse 49, the word of the Lord spread through the whole region. I don't know how long Paul was at Pisidian Antioch, but it was long enough for the gospel to go out all around this town. Verse 50, but the Jewish leaders incited the God-fearing women of high standing and the leading men of the city. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. So they shook the dust off their feet as a warning to them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. I don't want to over-apply or over-interpret the story of the prodigal son, but think about here who understands God's character best. The Gentiles who for generations have been far from God or the Jews who have the law and the prophets and the temple and, and, and know God at least in, in their word Based on this story, which one of them knows God better? Which of them really understands the implications of the Bible's message about Jesus? I wonder actually how well you understand it. This text tells us that the ones who know God best and are able to represent what the Bible teaches most clearly about Jesus are the ones who treasure his faithfulness and his generosity. To represent Jesus well, we must treasure his faithfulness, and his generosity. If we're really going to fulfill the mission Christ has given us, we have to treasure this. God is generous. He is faithful. Now, I, I want to show that to you from Paul's sermon that's here in just a few minutes. Um, two or three times that we've been walking through the book of Acts, I've asked you to think about the person in your life who's not a follower of Jesus, but who seems really resistant to it. Um, Maybe you are that person who is really resistant to it. If that's so, I'm really glad that you're here. <laughs> um, one of the reasons that I, I hope when you came you were welcomed in our church, one of the reasons that we, welcome, we can welcome everybody and we can, can befriend and love everyone is because we believe that God is incredibly generous and incredibly gracious and incredibly merciful. That's why we love our enemies and we pray for those who persecute us because of the magnanimous generosity that God has. That's why we keep 
praying and we keep sharing and we keep talking. You keep talking to your friends and your children and your coworkers about Christ because he's so generous. If you will come to him, he will welcome you home, whoever you are. And you can repeat that message over and over and over and over again. Now, let me show you three things that affirm this in this sermon summary. Here's the first thing that I want you to see here. God takes the initiative to rescue. God takes the initiative to rescue. Now, who does he rescue? In the first few verses of of this sermon here, it's the Israelites. Uh, Paul gives a review of Israelite history. And what does God do? Verse 17, God chooses. Verse 17, God prospers. He leads them. He led them out of Egypt. He put up with them. He endured them. Verse 19, he overthrew their, uh, the people who were living in the land. Verse 20, God gave them judges. God gave them Saul. God gave them David. Verse 34, God gave them Jesus. Think rightly about who God is and what God does God has a history, and it's a history of being active, of being interested, of being at work, willing to intervene. This whole book that we have opened before us is about how God moves to rescue and to provide. Paul uses the word here, Savior of Jesus, in verse 23. God has brought to Israel the Savior. Do you know that the Greek translation of the Old Testament, that same word, Savior, soterios, is used to describe God himself? God is the great Savior of the Bible. And Jesus has come, we'll get to this in a minute, as the center of his work. If you're a follower of Jesus, you have this story, don't you? You can see in your life how God has been at work in your life to rescue you. What did God do? Maybe he gave you the parents that he did. So that when you were a little child... The name of Jesus was on your lips because your parents spoke it to you. God taking the initiative to rescue you. Maybe it was a friend in high school who took you to their church youth group and invited you to go along and it was there that you heard the gospel. I heard the gospel from my parents. My dad heard the gospel from a youth leader at a youth rally at a small Baptist church in the middle of a cow field in Hunt, New York. God's initiative to rescue. Maybe it was um, uh, God using a Sunday school teacher or an elder in a congregation or a youth group volunteer. Can you look at your life and see how God in his grace has expressed, like he did for Israel here, this initiative to rescue you? Or maybe, maybe you notice that when we sing that song that John Newton wrote, those very familiar words of God's rescuing initiative, through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace that brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. God's initiative to rescue. If I can be so bold as to say it, if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, your presence here may be one of the ways that God is at work in your life to tell you today about his rescuing power. I think I've told you before about the time that I tried to learn to sail. It was terrible. It was disastrous. Um, I was, the summer before I came to Grace, I was the waterfront director at a camp in Texas, a large camp. I was in charge of um, the teaching of canoeing, sailing, water skiing, and uh, those four things to to the the campers. 
<laughs> I'm so watery. It was great. Um, so um, I didn't know how to sail at all, so I needed a lesson. So Aaron took me sailing, and Aaron was great at sailing. Uh, one of the things I learned when uh, the Aaron taught me and by my own disastrous experience is that you have to, you, you, with one hand you hold on to the, the sail, and one hand you hold on to the tiller, and don't let go of those things. So uh, Aaron was expert at maneuvering and pushing and pulling them just at the right moment to take full advantage of the wind. And he let me try, and a gust came, and I panicked and let go of both of them. (laughs) The the boat, it did a 360 in the water all the way down. It was disastrous. They never let me teach sailing that summer. You have to, on the lake, you position yourself to catch the breeze, and if you do, you can fly across the water. It's a thrilling experience. Paul here is writing about the blowing winds of the initiative of God, and he's inviting these people in his audience to align themselves with his initiating work. Now that's the first glad part of this sermon. There's a darker edge here to the sermon. Second thing, what I want you to notice here is that humans have a record of resisting God's initiative. Humans have a record of resisting God's initiative. Uh, that we are, we're the ones who by our own choices and our own efforts throw a wrench in the gears of God. We, we drag our feet. We shake our fist at anger in him. We move to thwart God's purposes. This story highlights two ways that it happened in, in the history of Israel. The first was with Saul. They asked God for a king. God had a king for them. His name was David. But they jumped the gun. They wanted a king. They didn't want God to lead them as God was leading them. So they asked for a king at their timetable, and they got Saul. They didn't get the right man at the right time. They got Saul. David was the king they were supposed to have. Then, secondly here, there's this rejection of Jesus in this passage, this thwarting of God's initiative in rejecting Jesus. And Paul speaks about that in verses 27 through 29. There's a a twist here, isn't there? They did not recognize that Jesus was the Savior, and with malice they condemned him to death. They did it out of jealousy and hatred. Ironically, though, but they did everything that God had planned. They were motivated by anger and jealousy, but they actually fulfilled the scriptures. They should have known better. Paul is telling this parallel story. He's telling the story of God's initiative. God rescues, God informs, God reveals. And human beings have this this tendency, this history of thwarting and pushing back and resisting God's good initiative. What are we to make of this parallel story? Well, one of the things that Paul does here. Is there a threat? Is there's a threat involved in this? Verses 40 and 41 of the sermon. Take care that what the prophets have said doesn't happen to you. And here's what Habakkuk said. You scoff at the message of the prophets. You're going to wonder and you're going to perish. Because I'm going to do something in your days that you would never believe even if someone told you. It's going to be that bad, severe judgment. Resisting and rejecting Jesus Christ is not a consequenceless decision. It's not okay for you to make little of Jesus. It's not okay for you to come week in and week out in our church and sing and participate and listen and not turn and trust in him. If your parents or your spouse drag you here and you don't want to be, uh, you don't want to be here, I am pleading with you about this. This is not a decision that you can ignore. 
neutrality with regard to Jesus is a choice with disastrous consequences. There's a threat in this sermon. You cannot, you must not make little of Jesus. I wonder, maybe you can see too in this this story that Paul tells some parallels in your own life of God's initiative and your resistance, your pushing back against it. You probably could take this story and put it over as a grid over the circumstances of of areas of, of your life, your finances or your marriage or your parenting. God takes the initiative. He he provides you with resources. He gives you relationships. He gives you opportunities. He blesses and provides. And you have a history of doing everything you can to twist it and pervert it and push it and push back. We overspend, we undergive, we hoard, we jealously protect, we covet, we make a mess of what God does. But the story still remains. God is gracious and initiating. There's reason to turn and trust in him. Now finally, here's a third observation from this text. It magnifies God's faithfulness and generosity. The center of God's rescuing work is Jesus. The center of God's rescuing work is Jesus. There's a lot of discussion in this passage about David. We read about David in 2 Samuel. There's a lot in here about David. Uh, David is, in the Old Testament, the ideal king. He's the man after God's own heart. He's the one who would do everything that God wants. And he's the recipient of these promises. He's a recipient of the promise that one of his descendants will reign forever. And his reign, that reign of that descendant, will be marked by peace and prosperity and justice. And the reason that this son of David is going to have such a prosperous, enduring, just reign is because of the special relationship that God is going to have with him. He's going to be biologically a son of David, but he's going to be God's son too. Paul notes this this parallelism between David and Jesus. I wish my translation preserved it a little bit better. Verse 22, maybe yours does. After removing Saul, verse 22 says, he made David their king. That's a fine translation, but they, they change it, not change. They translate a word. They leave it out. The word should be raised. Does your translation say it? Verse 22, after removing Saul, he raised up David. He raised up David. Oh, now... Okay, keeping that in mind, look at verse 30. But God raised him up from the dead. Verse 34, God raised him from the dead. God lifted up David as king, and he's lifted up Jesus in the resurrection as his son. The resurrection is proof of this. The resurrection is the public declaration by God that Jesus is David's great son who's going to rule forever and ever. And being resurrected, not just, not just resuscitated like Lazarus, but resurrected, he has a quality of life that will never end. David is dead, but not his great son, Jesus. Now notice in verse 38, this is jarring here, isn't it? As he brings this sermon to a conclusion, he's been speaking about these great themes, isn't he? Promise, fulfillment, kingdom, David, and then he moves to sin. Now why does he do that? He doesn't talk about sin anywhere up to this point in time. Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Now, why does he do that? 
Because Paul knows that the ultimate problem that these people face is not a political one or an economic one or a social one or a racial one. Our ultimate problem is a heart problem. This condition of rebellion against God that we have, you need the forgiveness of your sins. Because you've, you've joined in this pattern of resistance against God's initiatives, you've made a mess of the good things that God has given. And you can't fix it on your own. Not through religion. This is a forgiveness, a justification that is not able to be obtained under the law of Moses. This sort of forgiveness comes through Jesus, who died on the cross as our sin bearer. And the good news of this message is in verse 26, it has been sent to us. To us, this message. Notice this great and lavish generosity of God and his faithfulness. This passage is one of the Bible's invitations to you to receive it. Will you see God's great generosity to us in Jesus? Will you believe it? Will you speak it? Will you spread it? How do you know that you really know God? You know it because you see in him a generosity and faithfulness that is worth treasuring. And once it's treasured, it's worth trumpeting. Let's pray, shall we? Lord, we come before you this morning, and this is a a full and rich passage, and we exalt the Apostle Paul in, in his delight in Jesus Christ, who is your um, the fulfillment of the promise that you made to David, and you raised him up at the resurrection so that all might see and believe. Lord, I pray that you would in our congregation make us people who treasure your generosity and your faithfulness. And treasuring it so, we would be ever increasingly faithful to, to speak it, to trumpet it to those around us. Lord, I, I know that there are men and women in, in the room this morning who have been thinking and, and praying for people they know and love for years and years and years, and they, there hasn't been much of a response. They're not seemingly any closer to trusting in you than they were 20 years ago. Lord, I pray that you would encourage these brothers and sisters of mine through this truth of your great generosity, your great faithfulness. Keep us all, Lord, persevering in the work of speaking of your great Son. Help us not to quit, but help us to delight in it because it's good, good news. We thank you. And we pray all these things together in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, Amen.